gracious and loving God, we ask your blessing upon us as we study Exodus 32 today. Help us to be humble and mindful of the golden calves we dance around in our lives, but also not so down on ourselves that we forget your promise of mercy and salvation. And it's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. The Lord said to Moses, go down at once. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you, I will make a great nation. <clears throat> but Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O oh Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out, the out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he had planned to bring on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain, carrying the two tablets of the covenant in his hands, tablets that were written on both sides, written on the front and on the back. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved upon the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound made by victors or the sound made by losers. It is the sound of revelers that I hear. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets from his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. 
He took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are bent on evil. They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. When Moses saw that the people were running wild, for Aaron had let them run wild to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. He said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you. Go back and forth from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill your brother, your friend, and your neighbor. The sons of Levi did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 of the people fell on that day. Moses said, Today you have ordained yourselves for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of a son or a brother, and so have brought a blessing on yourselves this day. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will only forgive their sins, but if not, blot me out of the book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. See, my angel shall go in front of you. Nevertheless, when the day comes for punishment, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. All right. So this is quite a change from where we were last week when we looked at Exodus 19 and 20, I believe, where the people are given the law. They experience the smoking mountain of thunder. They are confronted with the holiness of God. They say to Moses, don't let God speak to us or we will die. You speak to us. And they are ready to do everything that the Lord commands. They're done murmuring. They're not going to whine about not having food and drink. They trust God's going to send manna. They trust God will give them water from the rock. Um, they're ready to be faithful in the wilderness. And, you know, if you're taking your first pass at this, you might be tempted to believe that everything, you know, has a, a happy ending and the people are faithful to God. Uh, Exodus 32, not so much. Because when Moses delays coming down the mountain, the people get antsy. And I just want to dwell there for a moment and to have us get in touch with our own anxiety around the Lord's delay. We do believe that the Lord will come again in glory, that the Lord will set the world to rights, and yet war, famine, disease, cruelty continue. The Lord delays. 
or at least that's how it feels to us. And we've noted many times in this study that the essence of faith is waiting, that waiting is not passive. It's not like sitting on a couch, just, you know, watching the time go by, but you're waiting for the spirit to show up and then to respond in faith. But that God is the one who takes initiative. We wait for God, then we respond to God. And the people are invited to wait for Moses. They don't know when he's coming down the mountain. And for whatever reason, um, they're not patient enough to sit in their anxiety. And I would just have us consider that a lot of the trouble we get into is a failure to wait in our anxiety for the Lord to act or for something to happen. We often take matters into our own hands in those moments and disaster usually follows. And so whenever Moses delays, the people gather around Aaron. I mean, it has the image of they surround him. And there is evidence that Aaron really feels pressured, right? Later on, he says to Moses, you know, these people, their heart is set on evil. Uh, And so he really doesn't have a high opinion of these people. Um, They gather around him and Aaron may feel some pressure when they say, come make gods, that's plural. The Hebrew is Elohim, but with uh, an S, it's plural. Uh, This is different from Yahweh. Uh, And so coming out of a uh, Egyptian world where there were many gods, uh, this whole monotheism thing has not yet sunk in for them at least for some of them. So they want gods who shall go before them, who shall lead them. They say, as for this man, Moses, we don't know what's become of him. And the way the NRSV translates the Hebrew is, as for this Moses, comma, the man who brought us from Egypt. Um, But the Hebrew doesn't have the comma, and it's translated by Robert Alter as, as for the man, Moses. It's a saying of contempt. You know, as for the man Moses, can you hear the lack of respect in their voice? We don't know what's become of this man. Perhaps he's gone off and left us alone. And so Aaron tells them to take their gold rings off and their earrings off. This is part of the plundering of the Egyptians. They got some jewelry and Aaron tells them to take it off. Uh, They bring it to Aaron and Aaron takes the gold One of the verbs is took, another is formed. He took and formed it into a mold. And for those of you who have been paying attention to some of the parallels with Genesis, we remember that there was the taking and the forming of Eve in the garden. Um, Those verbs, take and form, they have a ring of what humanity was placed in the Garden of Eden to do, right? To till the soil, to keep it, to take, to form, to do things in God's world, to use our creativity, to bring more beauty and truth into the world. But here we have an anti-creation. We have the taking and forming of an idol. And so Aaron casts this image of a calf and says, these are your gods of Israel who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Aaron then builds an altar before it and says, tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord, and the Lord is Yahweh. And so it's a little confusing because 
it's hard to actually understand what's happening in Aaron's psyche. You know, is he trying to pull off this festival to Yahweh in a weird way? Is he trying to worship a golden calf? Is he scared of the people? Is he bending to pressure? We don't know. But what we do know is that Aaron is very intentional about leading based on the pressure he receives and that the golden calf and Aaron are inextricably bound up. And so the next day they offer burnt offerings, sacrifices, all well and good, except for the golden calf, of course. But then the people eat, drink, and rise up to revel. And that word revel definitely has um, orgiastic implications. I mean, the idea is that the people are engaging in the sort of behavior that, you know, if you've seen the movie Animal House, that that's small potatoes. Animal House would be like a church service compared to what these these Israelites do as they get drunk around this calf. And so what is being suggested about God's people here? It's not that they slipped up. It's that their behavior is lewd and ridiculous and disrespectful and completely counter to the commandments they've received already, the Ten Commandments that we discussed um, last week. And so the Lord sees all this, and the Lord says to Moses, you got to get out of here. Go down at once. Your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt are acting perversely. And that's an interesting thing, right? Because the whole language has been, these are God's people. God's the one who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And later on, um, God will say to Moses, um, you know what? These people are pretty bad. Let's go ahead and wipe them out. I'm going to consume them. And you know, Moses, I'm going to start over with you. Of you, Moses, I will make a great nation. Now, for those of you who did the Genesis study with us, you recall the story of the flood where God saw the wickedness of humanity and God chose Noah, built an ark and wiped out the whole creation because the Lord was sorry that he had made these wicked and perverse people. But after the flood, God basically says, I'm never going to do that again. Um, that flood wiping humanity out is not going to be how I solve violence. I, you know, these people are awful, but I'm not just going to kill everybody and start over. And many of you have asked that question. Why doesn't God just kill all the bad people and, you know, leave all the good people? Um, if you ask that question, uh, I would meditate on it for a while and ask who would be left if the Lord did employ such a strategy. But but for a moment, the Lord is basically saying, I'm just going to do a different version of what I did with Noah's Ark. I'm just going to wipe these people out and start over with you, Moses. Now, what's happening here? Because remember that Hebrew um, writing and language that, you know, in the 21st century West, we just like recounting the facts but they use humor, they use irony, they're doing a lot more than we might think in this moment. And so what I would suggest is that what's being highlighted here is nothing about God's character, right? Because if God really is that fickle, right? If God brings a people out of Egypt who are traumatized, 
you know, scares the living daylights out of them after not giving them water and food, um, tells them to keep the law and then wants to destroy them the moment they slip up uh, on a whim. This is not a God worthy of our deepest devotion, right? This is a God that's very fickle and impatient. And so I don't think that anything is being said about the Lord's character here. And I don't think that the author of Exodus intends to speak about the Lord's character. Rather, I think that whereas the rest of Israel really comes off looking bad, Moses actually shines in Exodus 32. Because what Moses does is the very thing that God has been telling the people to do, um, to remember and repent. Remember the covenant and change your mind about your wicked ways. And what is it that Moses tells God? First, he says, remember your covenant. Remember what you said to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember that you called a people to yourself. You swore by your own self that you would multiply your descendants like the stars of heavens, that there is a covenant that you have entered into. And so remember your covenant and then change your mind. And in a way, Moses's uh, confronting of God here very much mirrors what Abram tried to do when God was ready to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Because Abram with fear and trembling went to God and said, you know, if 50 righteous are found, if 40 righteous are found, if 30 righteous are found, will you change your mind and not bring disaster? Uh, and God said, yes, if 10 righteous are found, I will not destroy the city. But of course, 10 righteous people cannot be found. And so Sodom and Gomorrah gets destroyed. But this idea of wrestling with God, of bargaining with God, of heckling with God, of, you know, we see the symbolic representation of this with Jacob wrestling a man uh, all the way through the night and being wounded and then being renamed Israel. Your name is Israel because you have struggled with God and prevailed. Moses is struggling with God here and basically saying, keep your promise. Yes, these people are awful, but don't abandon them. Be with us. Um, and it's a beautiful image, I think, of Moses's commitment uh, to his people and coming into leadership. Um, and so the Lord changes his mind. Uh, the one thing I want to point out for those of you who studied the book of Jonah with us is that uh, Moses's encounter with God is the exact opposite of Jonah's, right? Because Moses begs God to not destroy God's people uh, whenever they sin, and the Lord decides to show mercy. Uh, Jonah, on the other hand, whenever God has determined to show the Ninevites mercy, Jonah begs them to change his mind and to destroy them. Uh, and that's why Jonah is probably the, the most selfish prophet uh, of low character that we encounter in scripture. Nevertheless, Moses turns, he comes down the mountain. And just because Moses has pleaded for God to forgive the people does not mean that Moses is ready to, you know, sing Kumbaya and have a big prayer circle. Um, he says, I hear revelers. He comes near and his anger burns hot. 
He takes the tablets and smashes them to pieces. Uh, he grinds it to powder, scatters it in the water, uh, along with the calf, and the Israelites have to drink it. And if you've read Numbers chapter 5, you know that this is punishment for adultery. Uh, there is a parallel story where someone caught in adultery has to do something very similar. And the implication here is that God has married his people, uh, but that his people have committed adultery. This is a theme that will uh, carry on into the New Testament, where we are the bride of Christ, right? God has married his people, but we are a wayward spouse. And so what's being said here is that the Hebrews have committed adultery. And then Moses confronts Aaron and Aaron's excuse, I don't know if it's the funniest line in scripture or if it's the most tragic and sad, because Aaron is not a model in taking responsibility for one's behavior. He says, look, I just took some stuff, threw it in a fire. It magically became a calf. I, I don't know what the problem. I mean, I didn't do anything. I just threw some things in a fire. Uh, so Aaron does not take responsibility for his behavior. And then we had this incident where Moses basically says, who's on the Lord's side? All the Levites come to him. Moses is a Levite. Uh, Aaron's a Levite. And the Levites will be the priestly case. And uh, basically, Moses says, you know, take your sword and go uh, kill your brother, your friend, your neighbor. And Robert Alter, the great Jewish uh, scholar, his reading you know, between the lines of the text, he says two things about this. One is that uh, it's implied that only the um, most egregious, egregious transgressors are killed, right? Because we're told that the full number of those in the wilderness with women and children is around 2 million people. I think they said 600,000 men um, from an earlier chapter we studied. And so 3,000 as a percentage of the population is not a ton, but, but the idea is that the worst offenders are killed, but that mainly what this points to is the need for purification and renewal. And this idea of purification and renewal, especially with the Levites and the whole priestly office, will be a huge uh, theme uh, as um, Leviticus uh, follows this text. Um, and so purification renewal, uh, interestingly enough, 3000 people fell that day. Uh, that number 3000 will show up again in the Bible on the book of acts when 3000 are added to the number of the early church, when the Holy spirit descends on them. And so I can't help but think that there's a coming full circle of bringing back in those who are lost, but that's just me. It's also interesting to note that Aaron is not punished and that Aaron will be the first priest. And so what's that about? How is the first priest the chief idolater? Uh, is the Bible saying something about the imperfection of the whole priestly system? Um, because, you know, there's going to be many wicked priests in the Bible, and that's going to point to a need for a great high priest who does not sin. Uh, and on that whole idea of the priestly office, Moses references their need for atonement in verse 30. 
but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement. Well, of course, Moses can't make atonement. Um, and in Hebrews, we're told that the blood of bulls and goats also cannot make atonement. And so there's this prefiguring of who can make atonement, right? Who is it that when God says, here are my commandments, the first is don't have any other gods before me. The second is don't make an image. And the people break the first two commandments the next day. Who can atone for such a transgression? And so a lot of this is pointing, prefiguring the great high priest who will say to God, you know, forgive their sin, but if not, blot me out of the book you've written. I mean, that that radical solidarity. You know, Moses is so with his people that he says to God, if I have to go to hell, I'll go to hell before I stick with you if you get rid of these people. And that is a radical desire to identify with the people of God. And of course, Jesus will do something similar. He will literally go to hell <laughs> on the cross, right, to atone and be with his people in their horrible idolatry and sin. And so I think a lot of that prefiguring is happening in Exodus 32 as well. Um, at the end of the book, I'm sorry, at the end of the chapter, we come full circle uh, do you remember the people's question to Aaron, come make gods? Who shall go before us? Moses is gone. Who shall go before us? God says, my angel shall go in front of you. And so even the people's desire to be led is answered. My angel shall go in front of you. But at the end, the Lord does send a plague upon the people. And that's significant because uh, last time the Lord sent a plague on people in the book of Exodus, it was the Egyptians, right? The oppressors, the people who enslaved. And again, there's a little bit of a prefiguring. Part of what happens with Israel is that the enslaved become the taskmasters, right? The, those in need of liberation will later turn on each other and at times turn on the oppressed. That's going to be the cry of the prophets, right? You oppress the widows, the orphans, the poor, and those in need. And, and so the plague always falls on those who afflict the needy in scripture. And so there's a little bit of a prefiguring of these people whom I've liberated, they're already on the road, right? They're already on the path to going down the exact same road that Egypt went down. And that's going to be a, a difficult thing to wrestle with as the New Testament, I'm sorry, as the Old Testament unfolds.